Our Father, we thank you that we could come this morning and to, to, to sing your praise. Lord, to hear your word read and to take to heart the things that we have heard. Father, we thank you that we could give of our tithes and offerings and all of the different things that you have called us to do, that your name might be glorified and honored. But Lord, as we have seen in the Heidelberg Catechism, as you have, as we see, come to realize the misery of our sin and the redemption, the deliverance that you have given us, it leads to a life of gratitude. And I pray, God, that as we hear your word preached today, that that's the spirit by which we would receive it with great gratitude, Lord, to, to be obedient to you, to give thanks to you, to be humbled. Lord, maybe you will call us through this to repent of sins with others or, or do a number of things, but I pray that we might respond appropriately by faith. Help me, God, um, to be faithful to preach your word. But God, we look to your power and for you as the giver of life to apply that word to our hearts. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So it was Christmas Eve, 1875, so a few years ago. Ira Sankey was traveling on the Delaware Riverboat, steamboat, when he was recognized by some of the pas passengers. Now his picture had been in the paper because he was the song leader for the famous evangelist D.L. Moody. And when they saw him, they, they wanted him to sing because he had such an incredible voice and actually wanted him to sing one of his own hymns, but he declined. And he said, instead, I'd rather sing Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. And so as he sang, one of the stanzas began this way. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our way. And when he finished, there was a man who stepped from the shadows and asked him, did you ever serve in the Union Army? Now, you got to remember, this is shortly after the Civil War. And Mr. Sankey said, well, yes, I did. Actually, in the spring of 1860, he said, can you remember if you were doing picket duty, that is guard duty, basically, on a bright moonlight night in 1862? And he said, well, yes, I was. And he said, so did I. He says, but I was serving in the Confederate Army. And he said, when I saw you standing at your post, I thought to myself, this fellow will not get away. He said, you, you have to remember, he says, I was standing in the shadows and I was so close to you that there is no way that I could miss my shot. And there you were standing out in guard duty in the bright moonlight with the moon shining on you and lighting you up as a target. And he goes, and just as the instant as I had my musket raised to pull the trigger, he said, uh, you raised your eyes to heaven. And he said, you began to sing. And he said, I thought to myself, you know, I'll let the guy finish his song, then I'll finish him out. And he said, I heard you sing the same song that you sang tonight. And he goes, I heard the words perfectly. We are thine. Do thou befriend us. Be the guardian of our ways. And he goes, as I heard you sing, he said, it stirred my memories back to my childhood and my God-fearing mother and how she sang that hymn to me 
many, many times over. And he says, when you had finished that song, he said, it was impossible for me to shoot you. Because he said, the only thought that kept going through my mind was the, the Lord who is able to save this man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. And he goes, my arms went limp and I never fired a shot. Now, isn't God's providence amazing? How he cares and oversees his creation, even including Ira Sankey. You know, years ago, people used to speak a lot about God's providence. How God in his holiness wisely and powerfully preserves and controls everything he's created and all his creatures and their actions and people would talk about the hand that guides history, of course, being the hand of God. But today, even many Christians don't think much about God's providence. And if they do, they oftentimes speak about it as if it's using a small p instead of a large p. In other words, it's of a God who is distant. It's almost like there's this force. It's not quite like fatalism, but sometimes sort of close to that. Martin Luther once said this about providence, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing just to make it a little bit easier to understand. He says, God's wonderful works, out of, that is, of providence, happen daily. But we don't think much about them, not because they're not important, but because they happen so regularly that we don't give them a second thought. People are so used to the miracle that God rules the world and preserves it. And because things are, they just go on as they should each day according to God's will, people don't even give it a second thought, but just assume that it will continue. And they definitely don't think of it as God's wonderful work. But do you want to know something? God's works of providence are much greater than Christ feeding the 5,000 with five loaves or making wine from water. Is that not true words? And in Solomon's day, much like today, it's very tempting for people just to look at life as sort of meaningless, as it just sort of happens, you know, uh, with really nothing behind it. There's no purpose. There's no God. But Solomon gives us assistance to see life as it is, and particularly as God's providence in life, and, and how we are to respond to the providence of God in life. If you think back to chapter 7, uh, we saw the contrast last week between wisdom and foolishness and the advantage of seeking wisdom. But in the last half of chapter 7, we, Solomon is telling us that while wisdom is good and it's definitely something that we ought to pursue, it's hard actually to find wisdom. We see that particularly in verses 23 and 24 because wisdom is rare. I mean, think about how hard it can be to understand some of the difficult teachings of Scripture or, or how hard it is to explain the mysterious providence of God, the way that he makes the crooked, the things crooked or the way that he straightens those out. And so Solomon continues in chapter 8 and he wants us to see the realities of life and then how we are to respond to those in wisdom. So those are the two main points that I want to look at today is, first of all, the reality of life. And he unpacks a number of realities. And then he 
challenges us or encourages us in how we are to live in the midst of in the face of those realities. But under those two points, I want to have a, a, a number of subpoints that have to do with the word control. Okay, and um, actually, there's four of those: three under the first point, and then one under my last point. So the first thing I want us to see under the reality of life is that we are under control. We are under control. Look at verse 2. Uh, he says, I, I keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Uh, Solomon is reminding us that we are under control. And, and I don't think that's anything new. I mean, I think every one of us understands that we live under authority. Kids, you might think that you are the only ones that live under authority because you're under your parents' authority. And it is obvious every day as your parents tell you what to do, that you are under their authority, right? And you might think, man, I can't wait till I grow up. I get to be an adult. Then I can do whatever I want. Is that true, adults? Do you get to do whatever you want? Teenagers, do you get to do whatever you want? No. There's always people there. There's someone there telling us what to do. They're telling us how fast we can drive, how much taxes we have to pay, you know, or, or just like you kids, you know, what assignments we have to do in school. So even though we live in the good U.S. of A., the land of the free and the home of the brave, and we have no king, we cannot do whatever we want. Now, I know in our culture today, people more and more act that way. And I think in many ways, people see themselves more that way, that they have rights and they ought to be able to do whatever they want. But the reality is that's not true. We're not free just to do whatever we want. And we see here Solomon reminding us that our first duty is to obedience. So we are under control. So he says in verse 2, keep the king's command. A wise person will do what those in authority tell him to do. And that's sort of the general principle here is that submission to governing authorities. So whether it's the United States government, whether it's a state government, the local government, but it also might be the elders of the church or your parents or your teachers or police officers, whatever authority there is, there is a sense in which we ought to submit to them. And there are several good reasons why this is true. And let me suggest to you the first is a theological reason. If you look at the end of verse 2, it says, Because of God's oath to him. Because of God's oath to the king. This is uh, really the message that we see in Romans 13. And you can turn to Romans 13 if you would. And if you look at verses 1 and 2, it's probably a very common, uh, common passage, but let me just read it. Um, God says to us as his people, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. You see, our submission to authority on earth is one important part of our submission to God in heaven as well, because God has instituted those um, authorities. Now, people often wonder whether this obedience has any limits. You know, must I always submit to the governing authorities? Are there times when it's my duty, not my freedom, but my duty as a Christian to disobey? And the simple answer is one that, that Peter gave in Acts chapter 5, verse 29 as the Pharisees commanded him and John not to preach the gospel, he says, but we must obey God rather than men. 
And, and this is a, an important part, uh, point to consider because what the preacher gives us here in Ecclesiastes 8 is a practical wisdom for when we are under earthly authority that's not entirely righteous. And, and we might not be certain what to do. And we read in verse 8, it seems, a, about a situation where we disagree with the commands of the king. Uh, look, if you would, at verse 3. It says, Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. You know, it's the picture of someone who comes in before the king to uh, meet before the king and they are hasty to leave because they don't agree with what the king says. And as a matter of fact, they're going to go hook up with people who have an evil cause against the king. And so this whole idea of be not hasty to go from his presence carries with it the idea don't be disloyal, don't be disrespectful, don't turn your back on authority. Now, the preacher is not saying that we never have a duty to disobey the government in order to fulfill our higher obligation to God. Okay? But he is telling us not to be hasty to walk away from any authority that God has put in place. And I think that's a message that's in particularly important today. You know, in a culture where, where we are very tempted to be very suspicious of institutions and, and authorities. And we sort of see ourselves as those that have to sort of stand up and sort of make an assessment whether that authority is worthy of our obedience or not, uh, that we need to be cautious that we don't take our stand in an evil cause. And when people are under the rule of ungodly authority, it's very tempting to rebel in an unrighteous way. But what the preacher is doing is, is he's telling us if we that we are to be very careful to obey those authorities. If we do fight that, the evil of some authority, that we are to do so with godliness. And one of the examples that I thought of that uh, is very telling is that of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And do you remember as they were rulers over the land that Nebuchadnezzar created this statue and he said, I want everybody to bow down and worship when the music starts. And, and they peacefully refused to worship anyone but God alone. Didn't make a big deal about it. They ended up getting thrown into the furnace, but God actually delivered them. So this is not to say that, like I said, there's never a time to fight against tyranny. And it might even include force. But th if this is a, a calling that God has given to us. But, but Ecclesiastes cautions us not to respond to evil with evil. And, and nations apply this all the time uh, by following the biblical principles for the just practice of war, including the safe treatment of prisoners, things like that. But, but even on a personal level, you know, when we suffer oppression or at home or at work or in society, uh, we, we need to not let our desire for revenge turn our hearts to ungodliness. You know, we need to continue to be godly in the way that we we uh, address authority. Another reason that we should obey our authorities is found in verse 4. It says, For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, What are you doing? You know, we may suffer as a result of our disobedience to God. So he goes, Another reason you don't want to rebel against the king is, you know, whatever he says goes. He's the law is on his side. And if you do that, you may suffer 
as a result of that. We see that in Romans chapter 13 and in verse 4. So he's telling us not to struggle against the authorities that God has placed over us as they are God-ordained and we may suffer the consequences of such rebellion. You know, so that means we can't simply ignore laws because we think they're stupid. You know, I'm not going to pay my taxes because, you know, the government doesn't use the money that they get wisely. They use it very foolishly. So I'm, I'm not going to pay my taxes or, or I'm not going to listen to my mom and my dad because, you know, they're just not fair. You know, they, they're usually fair in most things, but in this case, they're not. So I'm not going to listen to them. And the list can go on and on of ways that we can seek to justify ourselves. The way of the wise can be summarized, I think, in one biblical proverb. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 21. Proverbs 24, 21 states it very simply. My son, fear the Lord and the king and do not join with those who do otherwise. There's a, there's a warning there that we are a people who live under control. But we also are oftentimes without control. Solomon tells us that we're not only under control of others, but also sometimes without control. Look at verses 7 and 8. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are not given to it. In other words, we can't control the future. We can't control the circumstances of our lives. Uh, verse 6 reminds us, though, that God is in control. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's troubles lie heavy upon him. This sort of reminds us of Ecclesiastes 3, that there is a time for everything. And, and Solomon reminds us that it is God who sets those times. We don't know the future, and therefore we don't have control over the times, but God does. Uh, we see at the end of verse 6 how the troubles of life weigh heavily upon us. And we think it's because we are not in control. Um, but doesn't it seem that we consider life as good when things are smooth and they're going our way and we are in control? Um, but I don't know if, how many science fiction fans we have in here. But one of the common themes of science fiction, it seems like, is the whole uh, dilemma with time. And especially if you go back in time, what's the danger that could happen if you go back in time? You may change the timeline and then the, the events that, that go in the future. And, you know, it seems like every science fiction show, when they go back in time, somebody thinks they know what's right and they do something and inevitably they change the timeline. And then the whole show is about how can we get things back to the way that they ought to be. Now, I, I realize that's just Hollywood and stuff, but... But I do think it reminds us that we oftentimes think we know best and that if we just had control, things would be so much better. But the question is, would it really? Would it really? If there's anything that reminds us that we have no control in life, it is death. Look at verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. None of us controls our own destiny and determines the days of our lives. We, d we don't even know how to interpret what happens in our lives, let alone be able to control the circumstances of our lives. So then, is how is the wise person to live? The wise way to live is by submitting to the sovereignty of God 
and entrusting our lives, our bodies, and our souls to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is the wisdom. Jesus is the wisdom of God. If we want to know the wise way to live, then we must go to him. So, so we live under control. Sometimes we live without control. And sometimes we live out of control as well. Look at verse 9. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun. When man had power over man to his hurt, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done so, had done such things. And so, as far as this present life is concerned, the wicked often seem to get what they don't deserve. Um, here you have someone who is described as, as hurting others, who has power over other people, and they have abused that power. Uh, they were wicked people, and yet they were attending the holy place. Now, whether that's the temple or Jerusalem, it's uncertain. But they were, they were with holy people, and yet they were very wicked. They also, after they died, they were praised. They were seen as a great person, even though they were, were wicked. And Koheleth talks about this injustice in verse 14. He says, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. In other words, there are people who are righteous and do the right thing, who follow the Lord, and yet they seem to receive the consequences that a wicked person would receive. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said, this also is vanity. We see this kind of injustice, do we not? If God is righteous, then we would expect him to reward the righteous and, and punish the wicked. And yet often, he seems to do the exact opposite. Good people have troubles that only bad people deserve, and bad people get what only good people deserve. You know, we, we see examples of that all throughout life. I mean, think about the man who uh, robs investors of their inheritance what happens with him? He oftentimes gets away with it or maybe even gets a, a huge bonus why hardworking people lose their jobs and their home. I mean, just think about suffering pastors in, 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 that are put in prison. We read about this all the time in the persecuted church while the persecutors of the church grow strong in their cruel power. Um, let's just bring it down to a more personal level. I mean, just think about the student who cheats on maybe a very difficult exam. And guess what? They get away with it. They get an A. And you busted your, your, your bottom to, to work hard and to study and to do these things. And you end up with a C-. Maybe the worker who stabs you in the back gets the promotion while you're stuck in just your regular job. Or, or you may make a commitment to chastity, and although you're still single, the girl who throws herself at men end up being the one who gets the ring and the long white dress. You know, life is not fair and is oftentimes seen as out of control. And, and to make matters worse, uh, the apparent inequity between the rewards of the righteous and the unrighteous makes some people more likely to do evil. I mean, look at verse 11. It says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. You know, if evil deeds were punished right away, then people might be de deterred from doing wickedness. But he says here that justice is oftentimes painfully slow 
so that people think they can get away with murder. And so they're more prone to, to do that which is w wicked. S but Solomon doesn't leave us here. He gives us hope. So under this first point of the realities of life, we see that we are people who live under control, without control, and oftentimes out of control. But under the second point, the response that we are to have is one of faith. And that is because there is one who is in control. Um, this is a response of those who see the hand of God at work in our world. Look at verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked nor neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Those who walk by faith understand that God is in control. Life's not what it seems to be. Um, while the righteous seem to get the short end of the stick and the evil prosper, the, the person who walks by faith, the wise person, knows that this isn't the end of the story. Up to this point in time, it's interesting to see that Solomon has been saying things like, I see these things under the sun. I observe these things. But notice what he says at the end of verse 12. He said, yet I know. I don't just see. I don't just observe. But I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It is a sure thing. That the Christian understands by faith that what he doesn't see in reality now, he knows by faith it will happen. That it will be well with those who fear God. So for the Christian, he faces the world with hope, knowing that God is in control. That we need to re be reminding ourselves of that. Because as we look at the news, as we get on the internet and we see the things that pop up, we see the sort of how our society is sort of degrading, it's so easy to forget those things and to think that God is absent. But I also want to talk to those that may be here today that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no hope. Because who's in control? Nobody. So I can understand why you could look at your life and and seek to, to fill it with all kinds of things to try to find some kind of purpose, some kind of fulfillment, whether it be things or monies or reputation, whatever it is, the ache of your soul. And you're seeking to try to find some way to satisfy that. And Solomon says to you today that your hope, your life, your control can only be found in Jesus. It is recognizing your sin against God. And how you have made a mess of your life and you have sought to be in control. But God calls you to repent of your sin and to relinquish your control to him. Because God is already in control of your life anyway. He simply wants you to acknowledge what is actually true. But brothers and sisters in Christ, God tells us to do the same thing. To acknowledge that he is in control to, to submit to him, to submit to his providence. You know, I'm currently reading Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 
And he says that one of the ways that we get contentment is by melting our desire, our will and our desires into God's will and desires. Okay? That we, we accomplish that contentment by melting our will and desires into God's will and desires. In other words, we not only see good reason to submit to God's will, but we actually bring our will in line with God's will. Now, to, to a, a, a small degree, this is a greater thing than submitting to God. I mean, think about this. When we submit to God, we take our will and we place it under God's will, right? And we're saying, God, I will do what you have commanded me to do. But I still have my will. And my will may not be in line with God's will, but I say that I am willing to submit to that. And there's a sense in which there can be some rest in our lives when we do that. But what Jeremiah Burroughs is talking about is not just submitting our wills to God, but it is melting our wills into God's will. It is where I actually desire and want the same thing that God wants. And it's only there that we find true contentment. Because our wills are not different. Our wills are the same. You know, life will, will never be such that, that we can, can figure it out. And, and, and we see that in the words of, of the preacher he says in verses 16 and 17, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. You see, the wise person understands that he cannot figure out life, but he can obey the one who has life all figured out. But it could be that you could be here this morning and that Satan is whispering in your ear because maybe there are circumstances in your life where there are some rough edges and Satan is saying to you that you, you need to fix these things. You could do it. You need to straighten up these things in your life that seem messy, that you just wish you could do away with. But God is telling you this morning to leave those rough edges alone, instead to look to Jesus, to rest in Him. The wise person is the one who instead trusts in God's providence for Him to work out all things that need to be fixed. And sometimes there are things that we think that need to be fixed that God is, has there for a reason to help draw our, us closer to Him. I think about Paul and the thorn in the flesh. He prayed intently that God would take this away. And God says, my grace is sufficient. Just rest in this. I'm, I have this here to draw you closer to me. You know, one of the things that we learn in life is, is that the more you learn about something, the more you realize how little you know about that subject. You know, how much more is that true about life and God himself and there is a comfort in knowing that life and our sanctification, our provision, all these things are the work of God. And sometimes God's providence confuses us, and, and that's okay. Because there is a purpose that God has that we as mere creatures 
don't always understand. But we can rest content in God's purpose if we will. We can place ourselves in His hand and we can realize that we don't have to figure it out. You know, it reminds me of the story of, of the man who came to the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. And, and the man came all worried because he's, he had been reading the Bible and he didn't know if he was the elect. He said, and he came to Spurgeon, he said, I don't know if I'm half, because I, I know that I have to be of the elect to be saved. But he goes, how do I know if I'm of the elect? To which Spurgeon replied, he says, do you want to know if you're of the elect? He said, yes. And he says, choose Christ. He goes, it's that simple. You don't need to have to worry or to figure out whether you are of the elect. Instead, just put yourself in the hands of the one who is in charge. And that's what God is calling us to do today. In the midst of a life where we are under control, we are without control, you know, to understand that he is in control. Look, if you would, at verse 1. I, I didn't miss that verse. But I want you to see that as we place ourselves in the hand of God, when, when you are with the Lord and, and you, you walk in wisdom and you look out and you see God's providence and you place yourself in God's hands, what will it do? It says it will change your countenance. Your face will shine. That is true wisdom. Let's bow our heads this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much for your word that you have given us this day. Uh, God, it is very much a a word that where the rubber meets the road. And this week, Lord, as we look at our lives and as we consider um, just the, the circumstances of our lives and how we are, are people who wrestle with control, as we are people, Lord, that are under control and without control and oftentimes out of control, or that we might be reminded that, that you are in control and we can rest in you. Father, please help us as we um, wrestle with the temptation to want to be in control ourselves. We pray that we might just be reminded that Christ is sufficient. That the gospel reality is complete. That we don't need to add any works to what you have already given us. So help us, O oh God, to, to melt our, our desires and our wills to be that which you a desire and will, that we might truly experience contentment. We thank you, O oh God, that your power is great and that you are able to do these things. And we thank you and praise you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.